Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species is a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. It's broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia, and streamed live via the 3CR website. Podcasts are available via the 3CR and Freedom of Species websites and via iTunes. Welcome to Freedom of Species. I'm Kate Gracie, and I'm joined in the studio today by Dr. Annette Finger and Dr. Nikki Kowalczyk. Kowalczyk. Kowalczyk, sorry. And Neil Blake, thank you all for coming in today. Now, um, Nikki and Annette are researchers that are involved with Earth Care St Kilda, as is Neil, who is the Port Phillip Bay Keeper. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Now, they're researching and monitoring the little penguin colony in Port Phillip Bay. And today I really want to talk about what's going on with the penguins since that big industrial fire in Melbourne's inner west earlier this month. But first, let's just set the scene and get some context about the penguin colony. Now, so this morning, I just learned that the penguin colony is a direct result of the 1956 Melbourne Olympics, with the breakwater being built for the yachting events and that the penguins consequently settled there on the breakwater. Is that true? That's correct. And in fact, I think uh, that part of the breakwater was made up of some of the slums from Collingwood that were done. Uh, demolished for the uh, Olympic Games and the Queen's visit, of course. We had to tidy up Melbourne, you see. Oh, right. And so uh, they had this rubble, you know, various bits of shower <laughs> blocks and things like that to get rid of, and I believe that that's the inside core of the St Kilda breakwater, which actually provided nesting habitat for the penguins. Right. So that was obviously not... They didn't guess that that was going to happen. It's but probably some... not one of, the, one of the things they had in mind <laughs> when they were knocking down the slums, but anyway, yeah, that's right. what happened. And the penguins settled there. That's great. Now, I went to see the St Kilda Colony for the first time just a couple of months ago, and I was, I was just stunned to see... or oh, just to see, learn of the volunteer team that's there, and they're, just, they're dedicated to pre- protecting the colony every freaking night of the year. During daylight savings, I mean, or during non-daylight savings. So, why and, why not during daylight savings? Why are they, why are the penguins left to fend them for themselves when it's daylight savings? They're out there uh, now throughout the year, yeah, yeah. year round. Yeah, wow, it was, that's it incredible. It was originally during daylight savings, but uh, as the colony is, and the number of people knowing about it has yeah, gone, right. they've gone huh. through, throughout the year. It's amazing. I was just amazed by this dedication. So there's this roster that goes throughout the year. So there's always several people down there through the night, rain, hail or shine, whatever's going on, protecting S- those penguins. Sometimes it's- until 2 two a.m. just because they're there when the crowds are out. And as you know, St Kilda's a really popular spot yeah. for nightlife and you've yeah. often got people visiting the breakwater in the evenings. And um, 
so the guides are there reminding people not to flash their lights, not to, or to use flash photography. Um, you know, we've got the advantage of having this colony sort of so accessible and it's really mm. great for Melbournians to have this ease of access mm. to this penguin colony. It's incredible. It's one of only a few colonies worldwide where we can just, you know, skip on down to the beach and have a look. I think uh, Boulders Beach in Cape Town is another good example of that. Um, but, of course, this presents a lot of risks to that colony. Yeah. And so in 2009, Earthcare decided to put a group of guides out there to ensure that people were aware that, um, you know, these these animals are sensitive They and reminded them how to not to disturb them. Yeah, and they're all volunteers. So it's none of a- these guys are paid. They're just... You know, going there and um, well, you know, in their own free time, um, teaching the people about the penguins, telling them a bit about the colony. So they're educating people, and they're asking people to respect the space that they're in. Does it get any support from the authorities, or is this something that just Earthcare came into existence because they could see there was a gap? In terms of support, I think um, they're frequently funded by the city of Port Phillip. Uh, you, you know, to to have to, to fund the equipment, so um, torches that have red filters on it, um, also sort of high-vis vests, and I think they are introducing a new app, um, and this will sort of give the community sort of more information about the colony and it can become more of a sort of interactive experience for them so that the guides, because, you know, sometimes in the summer months especially, you can get thousands of people at the breakwater, so you can just imagine the crowd control uh, so Earthcare have developed this app, and I think um, the sort of the the main sort of reason behind it is to, I suppose, give people more information about how to um, protect the penguins when they're out there. It's amazing. I mean, those costs that you've you've um, detailed are pretty small fry, really, aren't they? Some high vis vests, some torches, and an app. That's you right. Know, and but so what the volunteers are providing is their own time and labour and love. It's phenomenal. Which is huge. It's yeah. amazing. And when I went down there, it really kind of restored my faith in humanity that there's people out there that really care enough mm. to put in that much time and effort through the night. I mean, it, I was amazed. I yeah. was really and I think amazed. we are looking for more people to join the, the oh, guides, but great. also then the research team that are going out twice a month to have a look at the colony and uh, we we take IDs, we weigh them, we have a um, we have a look at how many chicks are there, how many penguins are sitting on eggs and uh, you know taking recording all that information. Yeah, great. So maybe like at the at the end of the show, let's get some details about how we can join, we can volunteer and join either the guide team or the research team because yeah, that, that be would good. be really valuable. Um, now tell me, how, how unique is this St Kilda colony? I mean, other, we know that it's, you know, there's not many colonies that are in a, in a city um, in a city location as the St Kilda colony is. But how, what other, how, how else do they differ from other little penguin colonies? Well, I think it's, you know, the fact that they are so close to the city five kilometres from the city of yeah. Melbourne, uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's incredible. You yeah. don't find that anywhere else on the planet. Right. Um, and so these birds are exposed to a huge number of threats. You know, they're close to these really urban environments, uh, Port Phillip Bay and sort of... Yeah, risk-taking individuals. <laughs> <laughs> Hanging out in the city. City slickers, Absolutely. that's for yeah. sure. Um, they... 
close they close to one of the busiest ports um, in Australia. Well, mm. I think it is the busiest port in Australia. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, you've got a lot of boating activity in the bay, a lot of recreational and commercial fisheries. So they're exposed to a whole suite of threats. Mm-hmm. And um, the Yarra River enters into the bay, so you've got um, all the sort of you know, pollutants that are coming into the rivers, they're making their way into the bay as well. And, of course, plastic is is sort of um, big on the agenda at the moment, so that's potentially a threat too. So um, there are you, it's, it's such an unusual colony because they are so close to the city and they're re- this makes them resilient because it means that um, – you know, they are susceptible to fluctuations in prey and uh, they need to work around that. And they have done that really well, um, but it means they're, um, they're vulnerable. Yeah. yeah but apart from that, though, um, they're the first penguin of any kind that have actually taken up residence on a, a structure. A, a man-made structure. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So, so That's the first. First in the world. First. Yeah, right. Yeah. And are they... Physiologically different to the other to the other colonies because I understand that the birds don't ever leave the bay. So are they kind of are they like an evolutionary island in in terms of the other well, colonies? You know, forty years or you know, sixty years is a short term in terms of evolution. But um, when I did uh, my PhD and my research, I found something I wasn't looking for. I was just, as a matter of fact, I was just measuring a couple of morphological features on the birds and I went to St Kilda and I also um, went to Phillip Island. So I studied both colonies and then I went to some remote islands once as well with Nikki actually. And uh, But what I did was I measured um, a couple of things like head length and uh, beak length and all these things. But what I found was that the St Kilda colony have shorter flippers. Right. St Kilda guys have shorter flippers. And, and what's um, the significance of that? Um, Does that mean they're less less mobile in the water? No, no. I don't think it um, makes them any less likely to catch their fish. Um, they are also, um, on average, they are heavier. Uh-huh. So what you have to think about is that uh, not only is this an unusual situation that they are so close to the city, but they're also in a bay that is like a bathtub. Right. So there is not a lot of the stuff that comes into the bay in terms of pollution and... Um, it's actually like the the flushing of Port Phillip Bay is quite restricted because of the very short, uh, narrow mouth to uh, Bass Strait. And um, we know that the St. Killer guys don't uh, leave Port Phillip Bay most likely. Okay. At least we've never tracked anyone that left and came back. Um, and uh, we're thinking that uh, because they have, a compared to Phillip Island penguins, they have a shorter foraging trips. And uh, I would say they have a cushier lifestyle, so they just go quickly to the shop and come back. <laughs> Whereas the, the Phillip Island guys, they have uh, quite long trips, and yeah, particularly right. when they are feeding, looking after their their chicks. And uh, so maybe that has had an influence. I don't know. I don't know. But I made all the measurements, so it's not. Uh, yeah. The, it's not that somebody else measured those yeah, Phillip yeah. Island birds because there could be quite a bit of error in it, mm. but I did all the measurements and it's significant, the difference. That so. is interesting. But genetically, I'm not sure if, uh, well, they're not diff- distinct no, from the Phillip no. Island colony, although there are, I think, a subspecies, I think, in Tem- Tasmania and, and New Zealand, it's a... They're, they're, I think they're called yeah, the white flippered penguins as opposed to the little blue penguins. 
um, but it's, oh, it's yeah, it's, genetically they're not different. I mean, Amanda Puker did her um, thesis on it, and uh, there weren't there were no uh, great genetic differences. We okay. know that uh, the Sankilo colony most likely originated from Phillip Island, mm-hmm. and other colonies up uh, towards Warrnambool. So um, yeah, it is it is quite interesting. But what I also found because I looked at metals in penguins. Um, was that there was, but it wasn't convincing because there were too many other factors influencing my measurements. But um, the um, the penguins that had high mercury blood content also had, there was a correlation between high mercury blood and uh, short flippers. Oh, okay. But then there was also a correlation between the sexes and the the males usually have longer flippers and uh, so that it, it didn't come out in the wash, basically, yeah, in the right. statistical wash. But um, there was a correlation. Okay. But I can't cause. I can't. Uh, I couldn't draw a cause and effect. Yeah. With do you find that there's? Is there any other um, smaller colonies in Port Phillip Bay that aren't maybe so apparent? Are there any other? Well, there's been no no studies that that have shown any ongoing breeding, and that was a big question when mm-hmm. the penguins first arrived <coughs> or came to note in St Kilda. Was were they actually a breeding colony or not? And uh, or was it just a few blow-ins from Phillip Island who would uh, probably head back home after a year or two? And uh, quite clearly, it is a definitely uh, an ongoing colony, and there hasn't been any other records uh, similar in okay. Phillip Bay. Occasional nesting, maybe on Mud Island, of one pair or so, but not like any evidence of ongoing breeding. Okay. So they said there are around 1,300 penguins in St Kilda at the moment, and Neil, you would have been around when the first few pairs were spotted right and that was would have been in the 70s uh 74 there were two breeding pairs um recorded and nothing much was thought more of it until the proposal to redevelop the St Kilda Harbour sort of drew attention to environmental considerations for the area which prompted the um the study which is morphed into Earthcare St Kilda's ongoing uh, research right okay now um Nikki, I remember you, you mentioned just earlier about the recreational and com- commercial fishing activities that are going on in the bay. How do they impact on the penguins? Uh, look, I don't, I don't have a, um, a lot of information about this. Um, I know that you find a lot of anchovy in the bay, you get a lot of pilchard in the bay, a lot of garfish, and these are all sort of commercially targeted species. Um, I know that there have been sort of changes in legislation around commercial fishing in the Bay recently. So um, the way I understand it, commercial fishing is no longer permitted in the Bay, but uh, recreational fishing is obviously still encouraged. Is that right, Neil? Would you agree there? Uh, It's worth pointing out that the the colony didn't, when the first study year was in 1986 and there were 66 penguins recorded in that 12 month, the first 12 months. And uh, by 1995, there were uh, only 300 penguins had been recorded. So there was a gradual growth in the, in the colony. And one of the key competitors that they had at that time was um, the commercial fishing fleet, which were going for small fish such as anchovies and pilchards. Uh, and um, there was a uh, crash in the pilchard population, I think it was about 95. That's right. Right yeah. around southern Australia due to a viral uh, complaint they had. And um, uh, the pilchard and the, rec- the commercial fishing fleet just stopped because they just didn't have anything to catch. And uh, as a result of that, quite a few of them didn't actually con- 
uh, recontinue over time. And there was a marked increase uh, in the, the penguin population following hmm. that period. Yeah, right. So there was clearly a correlation. They were being yeah. limited by the competition from the commercial fishing. Fleet. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Now, do, do the penguins get preyed upon by the seals that live in the bay? Good question. I've never heard of a or seen a seal. Yeah, and in Bass Strait we do uh, see. Like I, I remember Certainly when I was uh, Strait, yeah. doing some work on uh, Kangaroo Island, uh, we did find uh, some penguin feathers sometimes in the you know among the feces of the oh, seal yes. colony. Yep. Um, in the bay, there's usually um, juvenile seals. Or correct me if I'm wrong, Neil. I think. They're mostly hanging out there, to, yeah. And uh, I don't. Yeah. There could be the occasional tassel, but uh, I wouldn't say that they. Um, I don't think that they are um, not, routinely. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, no, feed on them. But we did have a leopard seal in the bay a couple of days ago, and wow. I bet you that one snacked on our guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet. I reckon the leopard yeah. seal would go. Would have gone and, like, yeah. oh, that's a nice little mm. package. I I'll grab that. <laughs> An hors d'oeuvre. They are seen as yeah. probably posted on Facebook to his mates. Too. That's right, yeah. bragged like. Bragged can you imagine it. the size of these little little things? Yeah, they are seen as top predators in the bay, though. Yes, and yes, which is why um, the study on contaminants, uh, the little penguins, are actually a really good species if you yeah. want to look at the impact of contaminants over uh, through the food chain. Um, they are a top near the top. Predator. I yeah. mean, there's apparently there's not many large um, sharks that enter the bay as well, so they would obviously be on top of the penguin. But yeah. um, the seals don't really. Yeah, not, I've not, not heard many a lot of seals it. come to the top of the bay. It's around just sheer numbers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there might be one or two at any yeah. given time, if any. So do you reckon because they're the top, they're the top predator, they're the top of their food chain. Is that why um, they just seem pretty un? unfazed by humans because I, I worked in Antarctica like a long like 11 or 12 years ago and so I'm sort of familiar with the Adelie penguins and they weren't phased by humans either they just would come up and pick your shoelaces and then I sort of then I've seen this with the with the little penguins down on, at the breakwater they're kind of pretty much unbothered well certainly the ones in the public area so if you think about that this colony has been monitored by the researchers since the 80s they get handled or have been handled pretty much fortnightly for the last but even 30 da- years but even down at um Phillip Island and I've I went to that penguin parade um 10 years ago and there were penguins um, okay, they weren't approaching us, but they were walking past us and they weren't particularly bothered. So I'm wondering, is this a penguin thing? Are just penguins mm, not particularly a... bothered by humans because they're top of their food chain, at least when they get on land? Mm, no, I think when they're in the water, they're very aware of what's around them. Um, they are not uh, in any way cocky when they're in the water. But and when they're, they're outside, but they're, when they're habituated. On, but when they're on land, that's where humans yes, are. Yes, when and they're maybe on they, land. they know that no one's really going to bother them on land? No, I don't think so. Because okay. when they come out uh, in, uh, at least at uh, Phillip Island, when they come on, they sometimes take a couple of goes to actually oh, okay. get... Yeah, right. Over this exposed area of beach, right? So and uh, it'd be the, pretty intimidating. Yes, all those and people. the gulls actually <laughs> like to tease them and try to f- pretend attack them, and then they all oh, take right. off into the water yeah, again, right. and then they come out again, <laughs> and they're you know the strength and numbers. There's usually yeah. twenty, thirty of them rushing all the way. Oh, onto, poor little guys. Yes. So I don't think they're very cocky, and uh, uh, but they are curious. Yeah, I would right. say your Antarctic penguins. They come and pick your shoelaces because you are very unique to them yeah right you know they don't see a lot of yeah, people okay. 
And at St Kilda, I think it's the opposite. They are so used to having people in yeah, their right. face that, and then there usually isn't a bad experience with mm-hmm. it. I mean, when we go through the colony and do our surveying and uh, we catch them, they do not want to get handled. And no. we, you know, they do squawk They'll put and up run away. Yeah. And they will try and get away from yeah. you. So you've got to be quick. It's yeah. not like you just sit there and they jump into your lap to be, <laughs> <laughs> let me, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. ready for science, please. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. And and uh, it's also worth mentioning that they're they each have their own personality. They so you get some do. birds that are pretty timid and you know I remember while doing my research there was this female and I swear she was she was she was so docile. She was more than happy I to be sitting that. in my arms. Yes. And then you get these really feisty uh, males, you're just sort of terrified of handling them because mm. they get one sort of snap at your finger and and you're 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 bleeding. Yeah, yeah. It's like all animals, isn't it? If when you get to know animals, they do they all have got unique personalities. Exactly. They're not just yes. this this sort of nebulous mass of 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 of, of life. They all have personalities. Exactly. And we often forget that. Even mm. you know, people think chickens. Mm. The chickens are chickens, and when you get to know chickens individually, they've all got remarkably different personalities. Mm. So I mm. imagine the same would apply to penguins. Yeah, and, and also when we are there, we we have the rakali come up and check oh, us yeah, out yeah, while nice. we're doing oh, penguin beautiful. research. Yeah, they're awesome. So it's there's a lot happening on the yeah. breakwater. Yeah, and you've that's... also got to um, consider the time of year. So during the breeding season, when they've got eggs oh. or chicks in the nest, they're going to be a lot more aggressive yeah. compared to other times of the year, like the molt, when yeah. they just don't have a lot of energy and are feeling pretty lethargic. They, so. they appreciate being scratched. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There was uh, one penguin uh, known as Simone out on the breakwater many years ago that used to live on her own for quite a few years, uh, quite near where the kiosk was, several hundred metres away from any other nearest penguin nest. And Simone used to visit the um, caretaker at the kiosk of an evening and climb the stairs and go in there. I just had, had talking about personalities, yeah. and uh, I just tried for an experiment one night uh, as I was going out to check the colony. I picked up Simone and took her out and put her on the path uh, in an area where I knew there were about seven or eight other nests. And uh, by the time I'd walked back, she was back at her nest in near the kiosk. Yeah, right. They so just didn't want to know penguins. Yeah, yeah. She just wanted to hang out yeah, with humans. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. yeah. So maybe nice. there was something coffee in the kiosk. <laughs> anyway, yeah, just yeah, right. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Now, why is the colony made so accessible to the public when it would be quite feasible to fence off the entire breakwater? Because at the moment, only like half the breakwater is 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 not accessible to the public. But they could fence off the whole lot or they could even lock a gate at a certain, like at 10 mm. o'clock or 12 o'clock at night. But there's been a decision to make the, this part of the breakwater accessible to the public. Mm. I personally and, support that decision. So why, what is the benefit of, of making... Because it does, it does create a risk to the penguins. Mm. But So what is that decision to make the, this, this really precious, beautiful penguin colony... You know, accessible by humans, which can humans can so, be pretty bloody cruel at times. Yeah, but uh, if people are connected to the environment, they care. Yeah, right. And this is a way of uh, getting people to see what we have in the bay, mm-hmm. so that they can the next time somebody says, "Oh, by the way, don't flush your cotton butts," <laughs> you know, yeah. things like that, yeah. because it has an effect on what's out there. Yeah, right. 
and to see to see a couple of chicks being fed by their parents to actually watch that and at St Kilda for free yeah. you can see this from three meters away yeah it's amazing it is amazing yeah, yeah with the so, c- city yeah. skyline five kilometers away yeah. too. That's so right. it's quite a unique setting really to introduce people to to the nature in the bay do you do you see the be- do you actually see tangible benefits from that Yes. Oh, yep. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's partly historical too because you've got to remember that once upon a time the breakwater was totally accessible mm-hmm. uh, before there were any penguins and then that was a bit of a concern mm-hmm. once the colony had been, you know, we had the evidence to say, look, there's actually a, a breeding colony of penguins here. They were on the outer half of the um, end of the breakwater though, so yep. there were no none close to the to the kiosk at that time. But... The point was people used to go and fishing out there and other people used to walk their dogs out yeah. there and their people would just go and picnic or whatever. Yeah. And it was a bit of public open space, uh, regardless of what penguin lovers might have thought about it. So there was quite a, uh, it was quite a concerted campaign to at least get half of the breakwater, mm-hmm. first of all, um, fenced off so that the penguin area was actually um, uh, not accessible to the public. Mm-hmm. Then when the breakwater was rebuilt, the... The uh, whole structure was fenced off for a period of a couple of years and during that time the penguins actually moved down closer to the kiosk. So that sort of clo- uh, made yeah. them in closer proximity to where people were, were going to be. Yeah. So they have the choice. If they want to avoid people, I guess they there's still enough um, yeah, there's nests there. and yeah. There's <laughs> plenty of real estate, so they can go out there they and they, they choose to be there. And I really... I really think um, rather than preventing people from getting out there, we need to just use the opportunity to educate them yeah. and, and teach them and get them connected to and fall, make them fall in love with the, with the animals that are there, not yep. just the penguins, the vacali. The dolphins come and visit sometimes. Mm-hmm. There's fish around. Um, you know, and so. saying that there is, you, there are uh, cameras out there, so there have been a few unfortunate incidents in, in the last few years where some penguins uh, have been killed, um, and so Parks Victoria put in some cameras. So there is sort of security. Okay, cool. There is some security, and I think there is a fence at the entrance to the breakwater yes. that is closed um, at some really late hour. Okay. Now, and open first thing in the morning. Yeah, cool. Now, Annette, um, we're just going to – I want to hear about your PhD and um, – How much time have you got? <laughs> <laughs> Not as much as we'd like, but I, I'd like to hear about your PhD. But let's <clears> – excuse me, let's just go to a song first that um, Nikki chose. Can you introduce this song and um, then we'll come back and hear from you, Annette? Sure. So uh, I've chosen um, My Brown River by the Whirling Furfies. Yeah. Uh, so my Brown Yarra. My Brown Yarra. What did I say? You said river. River. Yarra. Yarra. And I work for the Yarra Riverkeeper Association. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, I have been introduced to the song just recently. Um, and it's a great, uh, I suppose, Melbourne folk anthem. Um, apparently people sing it around the world and it reminds them of home. It reminds them of the beautiful Yarra, the beautiful Birrarung, and um, it's worth a listen to. Let's go. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. That last song was My Brown Yarra by the Whirling Furfies. Now, Annette, for your PhD, 
You researched the penguin colony's role as a bioindicator for Bay Health, for the Port Phillip Bay Health. Now, can you elaborate briefly on that research? Mm. Yeah, so basically the idea was to, um, because we're at the St Kilda colony, little penguin at St Kilda, it's such a special way, like as uh, we said before, that this doesn't exist anywhere in the world like that. And the topography of the Port Phillip Bay is such that it is like a bathtub and everything pretty much stays where it is. Um, so the idea was to look at... Uh, a high trophic feeder, which is the, the little penguin. What does trophic mean? Uh, food chain. Okay. So trophic is by diet. So okay. they are um, one of the top feeders in the bay. And um, we were looking at, um, um, we've got uh, another colony at uh, Phillip Island, obviously, which is like much larger, 60,000 animals, I think. What was it more? Oh, I, I, 32,000 was the last thing oh, I said, okay. but I'm not sure okay. if that was anyway, 32,000 pairs. tens so. of thousands. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be specific, tens of thousands. <laughs> Whereas at St. Killer, we've got about 1,300. And um, and then I also went to a remote island, uh, Notch Island, which is 20 kilometers of the east of, of the coast of uh, Wilson's Prom. Mm -hmm. And um, so I looked at, uh, I collected feathers, I collected feces, which is poop, and I uh, also took blood. And uh, blood is a, a really good material to a matrix to look at what's happening within a bird, obviously, because the feathers could be externally uh, contaminated, um, and uh, they only get they only molt once a year. So you get whatever has been accumulated in the feathers at the time of the feather was built, and so there's there's all sorts of other issues with it. So blood is what the bird, same as with humans, you know, what uh, you've eaten in the last three days will show up in your blood. And um, I looked at metals. So I found that all the essential metals that uh, the birds need to function um, were very similar between the three colonies. But then the heavy metals, um, arsenic, mercury and lead, were significantly higher in the St. Kilda penguin. And uh, that was obvious within, like, if you statistically look at it, if, if you just looked at five or six penguins, you could tell these are St. Kilda penguins just by looking at those three metals. The arsenic is not a concern because that's naturally um, abundant in the bay. And um, the mercury is more of a concern, uh, and that comes from historic deposits from old uh, gold mining up the, um, up the Yarra and the other tributaries that go into the bay and also um, industrial um, discharges into the bay. And um, the uh, lead obviously has been um, has decreased over the last few years, you know, few decades as we've stopped having lead in petrol. But that's still um, that's also a human added uh, metal in the bay. But it wasn't at a level that was of any concern. But the mercury was starting to reach concerns where uh, another species of um, um, a duck had actually shown. Um, they had done some research and they had found that uh, at that level of blood mercury content, it started to um, neglect its uh, parenting duties. So, look, we don't know because there's so little um, known about how much of mercury is too much in the blood of any species, let alone birds. Mm. So, and, uh, you know, this is a fish-eating bird. They do have, uh, they're quite resistant to mercury normally, but we don't know. 
is basically the answer. But the, what I found was that, yes, the little penguin would be a superb species to do studies of uh, just long-term studies to look at how the bay is doing, what the metals in the bay are doing, but also what organic pollutants potentially are doing in the bay. And uh, we can look at uh, those, uh, for instance, mercury, we can monitor quite easily with the feathers. So I found a very good correlation between what I found in the blood of the penguin as what I found in the feathers of the penguin as well. And taking blood is high impact, is high, um, it's an invasive procedure. So unless, yeah, unless it's really, really needed, I wouldn't want to, to have, see a lot of studies on blood in penguins. But uh, the feathers is a really easy, you know, you help them, you scratch them. You know, they're, they're pretty miserable sitting there and they're, they're, all the, the feathers are falling out. So they're pretty happy with you taking a few feathers. They won't mind that at all. So when you, you're talking about this mercury that is of a concern that you're yes. finding in the penguins, is, would this be of interest to the fishermen, the, the, either the, the recreational or the commercial fisher people that are working the bay, that if there's mercury in the penguins and there's likely to be mercury in the fish that mm, people good are consuming? Question. Yeah, it's okay. What do you, what you have to consider is that a penguin doesn't eat anything but anchovies and and uh, you know perchards yeah. and white bait and whatever the little garfish. So they have an exclusive fish diet with a bit of uh, jellyfish thrown in. But um, we, if we do eat those anchovies, you can buy them and you can eat them. Um, you wouldn't eat them every day for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. If you did, then yes, I would start to. I would go to the GP regularly and have my blood mercury levels checked. I would see this as a good reason not to eat fish. I think you can Particularly, eat... Particularly, I mean, I'm vegan. This show yeah. is a vegan show. I'd see that as a good reason yeah. to say, let's not eat Port Phillip Bay fish because if the penguins are high, or the, at least those small fish, if these, the penguins are high in mercury, then those small fish, the pilchers I, I, and the anchovies, are yeah. also going to be high in mercury. Look, I did test them. And they were below the level of concern that is uh, set by the food, whatever it's called, I've forgotten now, um, the food uh, authority. Uh, yeah, yeah, yep, whatever that they're one. called. Yep, that whatever one. they're called. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but uh, so it's below the level of concern. So you can eat, uh, if, you're, if you're vegan, good on you. But if you want to eat some fish, that uh, you can eat it. Damn, that's yeah. not what I want to So don't, don't use that. Okay, uh, not exclusively that? anyway. pregnant women though? Yes, oh, yeah. uh, pregnant women and uh, breastfeeding women. Um, I would uh, stay away from, yeah, pro well, I wouldn't eat more than once a week, maybe, that fish. Once in your lifetime, yeah. that's it. And then yeah. just go over Look, again. it's all within reason and, uh, <laughs> but uh, yes. So tell me, um, there's got to be an, an, e an easier indicator for bay health. Like why can't you just sample the bay sediment? Because the bay sediment has those has those measures mm. of of heavy metals yeah. can't you just take base yeah you base need you need a lot samples. of bay you need a lot of samples though okay because it uh, it will um it will differ depending on where you are like yeah. you, you just have to poke something in the sand and pull mm -hmm. it out and you'd have to go and uh, make a lot of measurements um the penguin goes everywhere yeah, so it does the travelling for you. They yeah. do the travelling yeah, for you. And they come home and they're ready to be scienced yeah. every night. Yeah, right. So, 
Yeah. But the, the other beautiful thing with this accessible colony is that Earthcare have been monitoring their breeding success. So we've got this long-term data set of, you know, how many how many eggs are laid, how many of mm. those chicks survive, how many clutches are laid each season, and yes. this is this breeding information is really critical yeah. because um, that that is also an indicator of whether the colony is healthy or not. So if they're not enough fish in the bay, then breeding is going to be compromised. Mm. If there are too many contaminants and pollutants in the bay, then the breeding is going to show that. Yeah. Okay. And it's also, it depends on what you're interested in looking at. What are you concerned about? Are you concerned about what your, um, the, let's say, the impact on humans eating fish from the bay? Then you need to look at a high trophic feeder. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, from the core sediments, you're not going to get what something entered the bay, entered the food chain, and gets amplified, gets magnified, biomagnified, yeah. and also accumulated over age. Because we have got, uh, we've got these um, ID chips in the penguins, so we often know the age of the penguins. So you can actually, from the data that I've collected, you can actually tell if there's if you have enough data points you can say if there is a correlation between age and mercury contamination for instance right now do you intervene if you see a sick or injured penguin yes absolutely great so what we do um we've just restarted uh, the uh, surveillance of penguins well okay neil might have some other (laughs) what we i'll tell you the limitation of uh, of what we do what we do is um, (laughs) what we do is if um um we found that a lot of um like um, uh, we look at um, yeah we look at the feet. If there's any entanglement, it's usually around the feet. If there is any um, uh, damage or injury to the bird, um, that um, well, we, we usually leave that be. But if it's a, it could be that uh, that bird has been you know nibbled on by a seal or whatever or has mm-hmm. injured itself, we usually leave that to nature. We leave that be. But if it's a human-induced yeah, right. impact, yep. if there's fishing line around the foot, yeah. yes, yep. we do yep. we do help that bird, absolutely. Okay. So do you so agree? That's, yeah, that's Okay, right. Neil so agrees. Entirely. If it's a, if there's any evidence that's human-induced or there's some you know, obvious entanglement, then definitely in the man. But if it just appears to be a penguin yeah. doing its natural thing, well, you just got to let it do that. Yes. So, so this is what I wanted to talk about too, very, very quickly on the issue of plastics. Is that we we all know now that there's plastics are a huge problem in the in the seas for marine animals. Well, a lot of and animals, the rivers and the rivers. A lot of a lot of animals mistake it for for food and eat it or or feed it to their young, um, or they get entangled in it. So, do, is that an issue with penguins um, eating it and transferring it to their young? There's no evidence of penguins. Uh, consuming plastic pieces and feeding them to the young. That's a relief. In the St Kilda colony. At the St Kilda colony, That's a relief. Okay. Now, um, I remember, like, it was five to ten years ago, the Port of Melbourne did a lot of dredging to deepen the bay and the port for those supersized ships. And the project was a really contentious one in terms of the environmental impacts on the bay. Was the colony impacted by that dredging project? We can't for sure tell, but I did uh, – the dredging was 2008-2009. My data was sampled 2011, 12, and 13, and uh, I um – you have to read my paper to find details, but <laughs> <laughs> but it's sort of like there a was a cliffhanger. Uh, yes, <laughs> no, there's a. It did show an increase of mercury in the blood 
following the dredging yeah. project. Yes. Yeah. But yeah. that's the disturbance of all While that sediment. At the it same up into time, the at the same time, over 2012 and 13, at Phillip Island, was a decrease of mercury oh, in the blood. Right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Right. But, uh, so overall breeding success didn't appear to have been affected. Okay. That's right. But just just more heavy metals in the in the birds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Which may or may not be correlated. Yeah. Yeah. We don't yeah. know. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, so this brings us to the fire. This recent fire earlier this mm. month, there was this very large warehouse fire in the western suburbs of Melbourne just a couple of weeks ago, and that devastated Stony Creek, and Stony Creek is a tributary of, of the Yarra River. Mm. And within days of that fire, there were thousands of fish that were found dead in, the, in Stony Creek, and there were lots of water birds found dead too. Um, a lot of that in really important benthic life um, in the mud was found, is, has been found dead. That's the benthic life is often overlooked, but some independent scientists found that there's lots of lots of that stuff was dead, and now so Stony Creek is a tributary of the of the Yarra River, and its mouth and it's the mouth of the of the the Stony Creek comes right out near the mouth of the Yarra River, so right at the top of the bay essentially. Mm. So that I'm thinking it's got to have a, an impact on the penguins. What are your what are your concerns for the colony? Well. Um it's it's really early to say. Um, I don't think there have been any reports of any sort of dead penguins that have been sort of covered in, in chemicals at this stage. Um, this is going to be a long-term issue, and this is the um, the great thing about having this long-term data set is we can have a look at their breeding this year and we can then start asking questions as to whether this, if there is a decline, if it may be related to the contaminants that have leached into the Yarra, into the bay because of the Stony Creek or because of the, the Westfoot Scray fire. Um, I think EPA are still trying to find out what concoction of chemicals entered the system. Um, They have said that concentrations in Stony Creek are at sort of extremely high levels, Um, but they've also said that uh, the chemical loads in the Yarra and Port Phillip Bay itself are sort of not deemed toxic to marine life. So I think it's way too early to say whether those chemicals will have an impact, but it's definitely worth keeping an eye on it because um, if we are talking about the sort of contaminants, um, you know, some of the toxic ones, they're they really persistent. They can stay in the environment for ages. They bioaccumulate, they biomagnify, um, and so eventually we might see them showing up in the little penguin tissues. Weren't there some media reports of dead fish on Brighton Beach? Oh, I've not heard that. You have heard that? Yeah, I've heard that, although I've also heard that um, those deaths are likely to be from fish that have flowed in from Stony Creek rather than dying in the bay. Yeah, right. Um, Well, it's worth thinking about um, one of the reasons why the St Kilda penguins are there in the first place is the proximity to the anchovy population, which come up to spawn in the top of the bay. Mm. Right exactly when they're wanting to be breeding and feeding chicks, which is around now. You know, so the timing mm. of this fire is impactful. Couldn't be worse, yeah. It'll be interesting yeah. to see whether the anchovies have actually been impacted by it because that, that'll definitely come out in the current mm. uh, study of the current breeding success. Yeah. Yeah. And if, we, if we lose a cohort, you know, that then that year those guys uh, won't produce another cohort. You know, they come here mm. to spawn. Mm. Yeah. Now, um, I, I understand that... There was millions of litres of firefighting foam, of, of firefighting water, combined with the um, the firefighting foam and the warehouse chemical 
mm. in question, and that was all released into Stony Creek. Mm. Not mm. not deliberately released, but it just it flowed all into yeah. Stony it Creek. It wasn't prevented. It wasn't well. It wasn't adequately prevented, or it wasn't prevented in time. Mm. Do you think that um, those firefighting protocols that were enacted for that particular fire were appropriate, considering what was at stake environmentally? Because I mean, fire. Big, big warehouse fires, this wasn't the first warehouse fire in the world. No. Um, I can imagine you can do better than that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think there's got to be, yeah. I, I think one of the problems was also that they didn't know what was burning there. They didn't know the chemicals that were actually um, in that. Um, but they know what's in, in their warehouse. phone. Yes, they know what's in their phone. But I would say that um, um, it probably most of the toxicity would have come from the stuff that was burning. Well, the, I or, think, um, I mean what was burning but the firefighting foam that would sort of need to have a sort of um there would be oxygen depleting agents in yes. that fire foam yeah. so the chemicals would have an impact on the organisms in stony creek but because that foam um uses up oxygen in the process that would potentially deplete oxygen levels in the water and you know the water mm. quality would be you know in, in in a terrible way and it is and so mm. you know you've got all these fish deaths you've got all these bird deaths microinvertebrates um i've heard uh i've heard anecdotal evidence that the vet there's been vegetation die off um and uh yeah oxygen yeah. levels would um probably be at the front of all of that Mm. Yeah, I heard there was a really bad fire a few years back up in Brisbane, and they that had the effect it had was uh, that uh, then the um, the regulations were changed so that this would not happen again, and a creek was devastated as a process. But uh, then maybe that it, was a it, state change. It caused, yeah, it it uh, led to changes, and I think we can certainly, uh, I think we need to ask that uh, uh, this gets looked at and uh, where uh, improvements can be made, that those should be implemented as soon as possible. Mm. We can put something in place that uh, that stuff gets um, sucked up again and not uh, allowed to go down storm drains. Well, I think we should sort of count our lucky stars that PFAS uh, has been... Um, What's PFAS? PFAS, I think it stands for perfluorinated chemicals. Anyway, they're really toxic. And again, they're really persistent. They biomagnify, they bioaccumulate. They've been associated with a whole bunch of human diseases um, around the world. And they've been phased out in f- in um, fire foam uh, across Australia Um the apparently the new fire foams there um, have less of an impact on the environment. Um, I don't know where studies are at at the stage, but I'm I'm just glad that you know the the millions of liters of of um, PFAS contaminated foam didn't enter into the Stony Creek because um, yeah that would have been yeah. even worse. Yeah. Now um, I went down I went down to the Stony Creek. It was about Oh, four days after the event, and I just saw um, the, the, all the dead fish had already been cleaned up. Most of them, the, mm. the vast majority of dead fish had been already cleaned up, and the dead birds. But there was still um, there was still a few f- fish floating around that they were cleaning up. There was a lot of sludge, mm. like a high tide mark of sort of black, oily gunk mm. up along on the edge in that sort of intertidal strip on, of the, the the lower Stony Creek, and it was just 
it was black gunk. I've still actually, I've got it on my boots that I'm wearing now. Oh. But this black oily stuff from there. And I just still saw there were birds at the at, right at the mouth of the Stony Creek. There were birds feeding down on the water. They were in the air swooping down doing their feeding at just right where the where Stony Creek enters the Yarra. And I was thinking, well, surely there be, should be measures just to stop these birds even feeding because well, it should I, be cleaned up. I'm, well, because you can't just miraculously clean it up like that. It's going to take time. But meanwhile, these birds are still feeding on whatever's come through all this muck. Mm. And I'm thinking, this. I'm still watching this disaster unfold. You know, it's still happening right now before my eyes that there's birds coming down and feeding here. Isn't there a, is it some kind of measures to prevent or to de- deter these seabirds from continuing to feed in this grossly mm. contaminated area? Well, yeah, I did hear um, of the the black swans in the area. So uh, apparently there were three black swans that were taken to Melbourne Zoo um, and, and, and cleaned and treated, and uh, they released them at Albert Park Lake, and apparently these particular swans were in molt, so they couldn't fly away. So you've got some birds that are sort of residents to the area, yeah. some birds that um, can't fly away. Um, the ones and, – and, of course – sort of removing birds from a particular area, I mean, you would think that it's... I can't think of any ideas how to stop that from happening, but you would think that these birds would often return because birds are so territorial and because they so, you know, they... They like the penguins. There was a construction... um, There was some construction at the breakwater several years ago and we removed penguins from particular burrows hundreds of times and they kept going back to that same burrow... Um, and so to sort of relocate birds from Stony Creek would be um, quite a challenge. But I'm surprised that more hasn't been done to, for example, remove fish while they're still alive, you know, protect them and then sort of introduce them, introduce them somewhere else. Yeah, um, yeah. I think something, I don't know, I mean, the EPA is always critically underfunded and understaffed. But, uh, yeah, I think there should have been a call to just mobilise and um, do something, get more people yeah. in there and clean it up. Because I know that, like, rice farmers, when they don't want ducks on their rice, they can set up boom guns, and the boom guns just make a booming sound to frighten off the yes, birds and the boom you, guns. Can and you imagine the people that live there, how they, they would have liked that? But <laughs> down, at the end, but the, down at the end of Stony Creek, there's, it's not a residential area. Mm. Oh, okay. It's mm. not, there's, there's not any residents for maybe several hundred metres at least down at the end there, mm. this area that we're talking about. So maybe boom guns could deter the, um, deter these seabirds mm. from feeding there for a while yeah. until at least it might give them a – until they get used to it, it might be a few days, but that few days might buy them some time, mm. some critical time mm. to let the contaminants at least dilute a bit. It seems there hasn't been a sort of a plan for yeah, how it, to deal with wildlife exactly. in this kind of situation. My, that's my point, I think. It's just that there, there doesn't seem to be a plan and – I can't believe that this is a first mm. in the world or let alone in Australia. That no, it can't be. This must happen all the time. And well, why just, aren't there plans to enact to, to, for this kind of situation? Yeah. Well, there was a, you know, the, the recycling plant along Mary Creek a couple of years ago, the Somerville fire, um, and there were reports about, you know, how to deal with a fire like that in future. And I'm, and I'm thinking... Have these been yeah. have these been applied? Exactly. Um, anyway, there's going to be an investigation, and I'm I'm hoping that in that report those answers will will, will show up. Um, same with what are going to be the long term impacts of these contaminants entering the waterway. What are the contaminants? 
is the current fire foam uh, in in use? Does it really yeah. have low environmental impact? Because um, it's uh, it's going to have flow on effects for 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 decades. All f- yeah. food levels in the bay and in the rivers for a long time. For a long time. For a long absolutely. time. Are, are the relevant authorities? Are they? Do you think they're genuinely interested and invested in in the health of the bay, in the penguin colony, in in remediation of Stony Creek? Of course they are. It comes down to funding. It always comes down to funding. That they just don't, if they don't have the funds, they can't. I, I would say yeah, so. Yeah, okay. I mean, I mean there's, there's, there's people working there that care. Yeah, okay. Because otherwise they wouldn't be working in, yeah. like, EPA. Um, but, you know. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that all, all agencies are geared to coping with what's thought of as normal situations. Yeah. So these kind of extraordinary crises, are, they're just not really... Um, prepared mm. for that mm. because if they were that'd be a massive cost that they'd have to be bearing all of the yeah. time and that's the problem they just don't have the funding to be able yeah. to respond yeah. rapidly now um just to let everybody know that there's going to be a save stony creek rally on this right. thursday morning at the steps of pa- melbourne's parliament house in spring street and this rally is just to remind the victorian government that this wee little creek that's largely unknown to people who don't live in the inner west is is an important creek and it's in crisis and it really needs help urgently. And that rally is being organised by Friends of Stony Creek and Friends of Crookshank Park. And you can find it on um, Facebook and um, Freedom of Species will post it on our um, Facebook page today as well. So you can find details of that shortly. Now, can you very, very quickly, one of you lovely people, can you very quickly tell us how to volunteer or how to get details of if you want to volunteer to be a penguin guide or to be um, a research assistant? Absolutely. So um, Earthcase in Kilda will be uh, having a, um, a sort of workshop for potential guides for the St Kilda Colony on the 22nd of September at 10am at the Port Phillip Eco Centre. I'll post that on our Facebook page also. Great. And then, of course, uh, the three of us involved with um, other projects around the river and around the bay. So Yarra Riverkeeper Association is always looking for volunteers. Look us up online, Port Phillip Eco Centre. And, and the Boomerang Alliance, come and volunteer with me. Help me <laughs> reduce marine plastic pollution. Okay, so you got it. That's you got to volunteer. It's a wonderful organisation. Please do it. Now we're going. Um, we're going to finish up. Thank you very much to Nikki, Annette, and Neil. You've been listening to these wonderful people from Earthcare St Kilda talking about the little penguin colony at St Kilda in Port Phillip Bay. Now you can email us at Freedom of Species. Our email address is info at freedomofspecies.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And we're going to leave you with one last song picked by Nikki and it's called what's it called Nikki? Oh, I don't uh, remember the one that uh, is it the Almond Brown Rivers? Almond Brown is the artist and it's called Rivers. Yes. And relevant to today's conversation, um, rivers are sort of often metaphors for for or they really sort of reflect what's going on in our society. Let's do it. See you next week. Thanks Kate. Right. Thank you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.